Ascending Olympus, the Inner Sanctums Olympics podcast. I'm your host, Jackie, and I am joined once again by Dan and Will. So how are you guys going this week? Yeah, it's not it's not too bad. Um, it's interesting to see that um, as we get closer and closer, the news gets busier and busier and the team kind of fills out. We've gone from uh, just over 100 athletes about two weeks ago to 180 athletes now, and we're Sounds like we're going to end up with close to 480 athletes going across to the game. So it's keeping us pretty busy down here. Certainly is. Yeah. Plenty to talk about um, as usual. And yeah. Yeah. And I find it it's so strange that in we haven't even had the summer games and we'll probably keep saying this until the summer games start. But now all the winter athletes are doing all of their promotional work for the networks of their respective countries, despite the fact that we still haven't seen a summer games. And it's just like, it's a bit soon. And then you're like, it's 10 months away still. Yeah, so it's it's actually 236 days today until the start of the Winter Games, which is terrifyingly close given that we've still got another Olympics to cover between now and then. Yeah. But I guess we're going to get used to each other's company every week. <laughs> got a lot to talk about both during, following and before winter, so... <laughs> So as we spoke about last week, the Australian Olympic team will be getting vaccines before they head off to Tokyo. Uh, It's been a bit interesting, though, with the way that the media spun it in Australia, at least. There's been uh, press conferences with Matt Carroll uh, where they've talked about the war games that they've run uh, leading into the Olympics um, for just best-case scenario, worst-case scenario, most realistic scenario, and... By the sounds of it, they're thinking that about 100 athletes from other countries that not, are not necessarily going to be fully vaccinated by their athletes are going to have COVID or get COVID during the Games. So, I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Yeah, I mean, last week at, at the press conference, um, Matt Carroll was pretty emphatic about a lot of things, but one of which was going to be that um, there were plans in place for athletes getting COVID because they do expect it to either enter the bubble or be brought into the bubble and they expect that it is going to be an issue at some point. And there is a whole system of contingencies, both if an athlete and a staff member test positive and how they're going to handle that. It's um, it's a bit of a strange one, actually, just with the, the COVID situation. Obviously, we're seeing the IPL, actually, that um, this evening has been postponed um, because of COVID entering the bubble. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how they sort of try and c- combat that, I guess, um, yeah, on that front. It, it is also interesting that uh, in many ways the IPL is the first failed bubble that we've seen. I mean, you, you look at a lot of the sports that have gone with these plans and have really followed them to the letter. Um, you know, the NBA, the AFL last year, even the IPL last year, when they stuck to the letter of the rules of the bubble, it was successful and this time it was broken. Yeah, the um, there was uh, 
a one day series, I think, between um, England and South Africa um, early early this year or late last year that was thrown into turmoil a bit because of a few cases there. And obviously that was a bit of a, a stark warning of um, of what could happen, I guess, if if the bubble bubble goes wrong. But obviously I think the IPL's done done well to to solidify and um, sort of work out the logistics of the bubble there. But obviously like it just shows like one slip up can send the whole thing into a, into a, yeah, a heck of a lot of turmoil. So yeah, you, you really got to be cautious. Yeah. And I look at it of the perspective, they've released the new rules on Friday last week and there's some that were expected. So the three test in 96 hours, um, I, had heard talks about the sort of fly in fly out so they're going to come in five to four days prior to their competition and they need to leave japan 48 hours after the competition i was surprised that came in partially because i think some of the ceremonial aspects of the games whilst they're not that important it means they're going to be seen in a very different way this year specifically the closing ceremony because a lot of sports end before that 48 hour window um, of the closing ceremony. Yeah, I think, um, you know, again, Matt Carroll was was pretty emphatic that um, it is certainly a, a really tough situation for a lot of these athletes and it'll be really tough for them not to be able to have the experience of an opening and closing ceremony. But at the same time, having an Olympics that is drastically altered by COVID protocols is better than not having an Olympics at all. And that's really what's at stake here if these protocols aren't adhered to. Yeah, I guess a lot of a lot of change and sort of um, agility is to be expected as well. And um, yeah, no one likes to see those sort of traditional aspects go out the window. Um, but I think yeah, in this case, that we're trying to get a, a big sporting event off the ground, like an international sporting event off the ground, and um, and obviously something's something's got to give way for that to happen. I guess. Well, and as we talk about how hard the Olympics is going to be for athletes and coaches, but there is expected to be about 78,000 volunteers at the Olympics and they are not getting provided the same level of support these international athletes are. There's uh, a report in the New York Times where someone that is a volunteer was talking about how they're only really getting provided with a few cloth masks and then sanitizer as well. And She's someone that's working as an interpreter, so she'll have to come into contact with different staff members, different athletes every single day. And if there is the risk of 100 out of those 11,000 athletes at the Games having COVID, she's got quite a high risk of contracting COVID herself. Yeah, I think that um, it's particularly pertinent noting that um, Japan's vaccine rollout is about as slow as ours. Um, And so a lot of the volunteers who aren't kind of in the older age brackets won't be vaccinated before the games either and and will be at that risk both of kind of piercing the bubble as you will uh, but also spreading it into the public and possibly causing a Japanese health crisis although at the moment I'd say that the other scenario is a little bit more likely given that Japan had 70,000 cases um, recently (laughs) but um, it's still certainly a big risk that they're taking. Well, and on the topic of health crisis, they're asking for 500 volunteer nurses. Meanwhile, they've got uh, several hospitals are almost at their complete capacity for beds. Nurses and doctors, even at the height of like the Australian aspects of the pandemic, felt very overworked and we weren't at the as bad as Japan was by any stretch of the imagination. 
And it's just, it's a big ask, but at the same time, doctors and nurses are needed at an Olympic Games for a whole host of reasons. But do you, can you get them from somewhere else without taking away from the host nation's resources in the middle of a pandemic? I guess that's an interesting one as well. Um, it's, yeah, there's still still a, a country to be run aside from the Olympics. So, um, yeah, I think that'll be interesting to to sort of observe and see how they how they approach that. But um, I think definitely you, you'd be looking to to outsource, I guess, and have have countries provide staff as well if that's sort of um, if that works and if that's um, if that's needed, I guess. And a lot of teams will be sending in their support staff a number of medical personnel um, in that capacity, both as treating athletes for, you know, the general ailments and illnesses that you might befall at the Olympics, but also kind of that COVID risk and making sure that they do have someone on the ground there to help if there are any issues with quarantine or sickness or, or any sort of major risks, that there is someone who they trust to look after their athletes. And I think that hopefully that will lighten some of the burden on the Japanese because so many countries will be prepared for this sort of thing. Yeah, and I do agree with the sentiment of if it was possible for people to volunteer from overseas to help with the medical side of things specifically. Obviously, it comes at it like the nurse or doctor's own cost because it is a volunteer role, but just to lighten the burden on Japan's healthcare system because 500 doesn't seem like that much in the grand scheme of things, but it can impact several hospitals close by quite greatly. Yeah, I mean, I think if if we think that 500 can look after the 11,000 athletes and 78,000 volunteers, you have to assume that 500 nurses in a local health system could cover a similar sort of ground. Um, and that is a massive number of people to be looked after. Yeah, and... I suppose looking forward to 2032, which is quite possibly going to be an Australian uh, hosted Olympics, it's recently come out that nine Queensland cities are going to potentially co-host the 2032 Olympics should Australia, who has been nominated as the preferred candidate currently uh, for 2032. It sounds weird to think that nine cities would be attached to it i can't imagine that it won't be called brisbane 2032 i think they'll probably call it queensland 2032 um in all likelihood if it is that and depends also on how how it's hosted there's talks that um the nine cities hosting might be doing things like holding single events or football preliminaries Um, and we look back in sydney had a similar sort of thing actually with canberra um, and melbourne doing some of the heavy lifting of of the football and and other qualifying events. Um, It is really interesting to see the look of multiple host cities. Um, In 2026, we've got the games at Milan and Cortina d'Ampezzo. And um, Cortina d'Ampezzo will basically host the snow-related and hill-related events. So the skiing, the bobsled, um, and kind of sports of that ilk. And then you'll have the indoor sports, um, for, for want of a better word, the rink sports. Um, will be in Milan, which is just a couple of hours drive down the road, really. Um, and so we will get a chance to look at how the logistics look like at the shared games before Brisbane or Queensland 2032. Well, and I look at the Wit Sundays got flagged as a sailing location, which 
having been there once in my life before, it's a beautiful area. And for that to be on showcase also sends a good whole like tourism for Australia, both of people living in Australia, but also international tourism, which is a huge benefit of the Olympics ultimately and why countries want to host. I'll certainly be volunteering for media at the sailing event <laughs> if it is at the Whitsundays. Yes. Yeah, I guess um, it, as you said, um, Dan, it'll be, it'd be interesting with sort of the, I guess the volume of stuff that's either in Brisbane or elsewhere. Um, but yeah, I think, I think Brisbane, Brisbane 2032, obviously Brisbane's a pretty big city and can host a, a fair bit of stuff as well. I think that probably seems, um, seems like a more logical, logical one, I guess. Um, but um, yeah, as you said, with, with Sydney 2000, like Melbourne and Canberra there as well, I guess that's, sort of about the the central location as well and if that's if that's brisbane i guess they probably probably should be called brisbane 2032 well i think that the preliminary plan had if i can pull it up uh 38 of the 43 venues will be in brisbane so there is a fair argument to just say well why not call it brisbane but everything's political in that kind of respect and if a city like Townsville or Cairns was also hosting events they would want realistically to be getting named or at least for it to be a Queensland but it's strange in the sense of it's 11 years away but we could be finding out as early as July as to whether Australia will be hosting 2032 which I don't know if it seems like it's too close or not but I think one of the things that that makes sense given that you know we are talking about it being 11 years away is that if it goes ahead they're going to need to do a massive redevelopment of the Gabba and I can tell you living a couple of stone throws from the Sydney football stadium those things don't go up overnight they've been doing this for it feels like three years but honestly it could have been 10 uh, based on how slowly it's going up um, so if they are going to have these games, they need time to put the infrastructure into place. So 11 years does kind of check out. Yeah, I think you're spot on there, Dan. The logistics obviously have to come come into consideration pretty yeah, pretty heavily there and gives them time to plan and um, and prepare and sort of yeah, make the best um, give themselves the best sort of chance for a for a great hosting um, hosting experience, I guess. Well, and the IOC assessments have said that 80% of our venues are, are pre-existing in that respect. There will obviously be need to be redevelopments done, especially at the Gabba. But the fact that we are not going to have to build 40 of the 43 venues says a lot as to like furthering the Australian bid over other wealthy and reasonable bids to be made for this Games. Yeah, it certainly is the case, but it might be nice to move into a little bit of the real sport um, that's actually happening and not talk about Olympic logistics anymore. Um, There's a a bit of a news story developing out of New Zealand this week with Caleb Clark set to decide whether he's going to continue to become a a stalwart of the All Blacks after a breakout season last year, or whether he's going to be joining the the Rugby Sevens team and and running for an Olympics berth, um, which will be really interesting to see what he decides and, and how it kind of goes about it all. I guess we spoke about that a couple of weeks ago with um, with the NBA and sort of tossing up between the sort of the the higher profile um, 
sort of sport, obviously the NBA is huge in, in America and around the world or, or representing your country. And I think, um, yeah, I think it's, it is definitely an interesting one from, from that perspective. Also pretty pertinent, I think, because um, Clark made his debut for the All Blacks last year. Um, so he, he's not really settled. He's not a, a stalwart of the side. And while he certainly took the game by storm and looked like one of the best players coming around for a little while, um, giving up his spot in the All Blacks um, to play Rugby Sevens this year will probably set him back a few years in the 15s and, and will make it a bit of a challenge to get back to the All Blacks. Well, and that's a big part of it is that he would want to be getting settled into the All Blacks and there is a World Cup around the corner for Rugby Union. It's obviously not as close as the Olympics or even in a year's time, but you want to be as used to that and be with that squad just as much as potentially getting an Olympic gold medal. And there's... I've lost words. Someone else talking. Sorry. And the, the two reasons that he kind of has to to decide at this point is that um, if he does go and play sevens, firstly, he'll have to kind of be in a bubble with the national sevens squad. Um, they're confined to internal tournaments um, in New Zealand, but they're very much in a, a bubble already preparing for the Olympics. And the other thing is also the speed of rugby sevens is just totally different to rugby 15s. And, he is going to have to make a serious adjustment uh, to the speed of the game. Well, and I'd say speaking of speed, um, there is a bit of a developing story involving Paralympian Blake Leaper, who runs for the US, who has been barred from competing at the Olympics due to the effect of his natural height that the prosthetic legs have, um, which... The belief within that is the fact that if you are taller than your natural height, you're going to be able to run faster. Um, and it's people obviously have been comparing it to Oscar Pistorius, but there is a lot of things different. This is more focused on Leaper's height, whereas Pistorius was more focused on the advantage that the mechanics brought from his prosthetic legs. Yeah, and it does seem that. Um, looking at what we've heard out of the uh, Court of Arbitration for Sport. We haven't obviously read all the documents, but it does seem like the mechanics of um, the prosthetics is not really in question and it's not an issue like it was with Pistorius. We kind of haven't, we haven't gone backwards on this issue. Um, we've just found a new kind of nuance and depth to the issue. Um, but hopefully um, Blake... Leaper is going to be able to, to work this out and find a way to compete in the future because he does look like a really promising sprinter and it would be a real shame if, if he was prevented from competing. Well, and he'll still get to compete at the Paralympics is my understanding. It's specifically in relation to the Olympics and competing against able-bodied runners. But the big thing that I came out of it was the fact that it's 10 centimetres that they are saying needs to be reduced within his prosthetic legs to allow him to compete which that's not an insignificant amount and you have to in some aspects relearn how to run with those legs yeah i think it, it will be um, kind of a major change if if it is something he decides to pursue um he is an eight-time paralympian with these prosthetics so i think that oh, sorry eight-time paralympic medalist with these um so i i think we know that 
he certainly can do it at this level. The question is whether he wants to to continue to fight the fight or he wants to change his prosthetics um, and and see what he can do. But we'll kind of await and see what happens there. And well, speaking of athletes that have question marks as to whether they'll compete, uh, Sun Yang, who is a two-time Olympian currently, I believe, uh, he is missing the Chinese nationals, but China is making a real push to ensure that he goes on to the Olympic team, which deviates from their typical uh, protocols, I suppose is the correct word to say, as far as how they determine their team. Realistically, if you put any sort of drama relating to Sun Yang aside, I can't see any country saying, no, you don't get to go to the Olympics despite being our most secure medal chance simply because they didn't go to a national tournament. It, it is going to kind of be subject to what happens at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, his hearing, um, his eight-year ban was overturned by a federal tribunal and there's a further um, appeal at the Court of Arbitration for Sport um, after the panel was uh, kind of tainted by tweets by the panel president, Franco Frutini. Um, so we will see what happens with the further hearing at the end of May. Um, and it's possible that this issue will cloud the Olympics, noting that the hearing is at the end of May and verdicts normally take about three months and the Olympics are in less than two after that hearing. Well, and it sounds like he's hoping to compete at an event as early as June, I believe, was what I was reading, um, which even if it was overturned and a decision was come to before the Olympics, timeline-wise, a competition in June just doesn't sound realistic. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I think that whatever happens, there's going to be a fair bit of controversy about it. Um, and this certainly won't be the last time we're talking about this issue. I can guarantee it. <laughs> and I guess we'll talk on positive selection news. Uh, on Tuesday, the Australian boxing team was officially announced, which will feature six debutants, um, or the entire team are debutants. So it's quite... Uh, interesting we've got quite a few good boxers and world uh medalists in particular sky nicholson who was uh, got bronze in the 2019 worlds uh which was the last worlds to be held and she was also the gold medalist at the 2018 uh commonwealth games so is there anyone of the six specifically that you guys are looking forward to seeing at all i'm i'm looking forward to seeing alex winwood um he's got a really great story um, he's going to be the first Indigenous Australian boxer to compete at the Olympics. And that's a pretty cool story. So he's carrying not just kind of the, I think he's he's contesting the flyweight decision uh, division, which means that he's not carrying a lot of weight on his shoulders, but there's plenty of metaphorical weight there with the, the kind of background that he brings. And that'll be a really interesting story. So I'm really hoping that he goes well. Yeah, and... Uh, Caitlin Parker is another one that I think is interesting. She won bronze in 2014 when she was still a junior at the Youth Olympics. But her journey to reaching the Olympic stage, uh, yeah, Olympic stage is still interesting. Um, I think everyone that goes to the Olympics has an interesting story um, or just a story in itself. But a lot of these boxes, because it's just their first games and they're still amateurs, you can see that to an extent there's been sacrifices that have been made to chase an Olympic dream. 
when they could have moved into the pro boxing circuit in the past four years or so as well. So should any of the Australians do really well, we've won a medal in boxing before, but if this any of them won a gold medal, it would be the first Olympic gold in boxing for an Aussie, which would be a huge achievement. And I think with the team that we have, it's possible, but obviously they're going to have to fight really well at the same time. Uh, but speaking of gold medals, Dan, you were talking about cycling a little bit earlier before we recorded. Yeah, I think that uh, my guaranteed goal for this week is Philippe Ghana. Um, Philippe Ghana is a, a time trialist in the men's road cycling arena. Um, and he's in pretty hot run of form. Um, he's been, he's, he's the world road championship in a time trial um, in 2020. Um, he's the four-time Italian national time trial champion. Um, and he hasn't been beaten in a top flight time trial uh, in about 16 or 18 months now. So he is absolutely um, kind of a genuine threat for everyone to, to see. Um, and I think that this course isn't going to do him the world's best favour. It is a bit of a hilly course at Tokyo, but I think that with his power and his form, he is still going to be really hard to beat. Yeah, it's to think that someone hasn't lost in 16 to 18 months is insane. Especially uh, in when- any sport, really. Well, especially also when you think that a lot of cycling did actually go ahead last year, despite the pandemic. Um, They did have a really condensed race calendar, which might have helped him because he was able to maintain form, but they did hold almost all the races they normally would and no one got close to him. So it'll be really interesting to see how he goes. And speaking of cycling, um, kind of two of the, the more popular and more famed disciplines of cycling at the Olympics are the road and the track. Um, the road cycling's two events each for men and women. They've got a road race and a time trial. Uh, and the road race is notoriously unpredictable. Um, it's almost hard to, to guess who, who is going to come out of it because there is so much to it. It's tactical and, and related to the course. Um, and particularly this year with the men's road race coming just a week or two after the Tour de France ends. So a lot of the guys who probably would have been favourites for the Olympic race um, are also going to be favourites for the Tour de France. And it'll be a question of how spent they are after that three-week battle around France as to whether they can muster the legs to do it and whether it's going to favour someone who maybe hasn't raced the Tour or hasn't raced as hard. The women, on the other hand, I think it's pretty certain it's going to be a Dutch woman. The Dutch have four of the best female cyclists in the world um, in Marianne Vos, Annemiek van Vluten, Anna van der Bregen and Chantal van Park. And those four women have won just about everything that they've tried to over the last few years um, across multiple disciplines of cycling. So I think they're going to be pretty hard to beat. And I imagine that uh, we'll see at least one Dutch woman on the podium um, in the road race. The time trial is a bit more open season for the women. Um, There's a few favourites, but um, it'll depend a little bit on who handles the course best and who can make it through easily. The track, on the other hand, is a little bit different. So track cycling at the Olympics is run over five events. We've got two sprint events being the team sprint and the match sprint, um, which are basically a short relay and a short individual sprint. Um, and then you've got the Kieran, the Omnium, and the team pursuit. And Tokyo, and then Tokyo will be the return of the Madison. And the Madison's one of my favorite cycling events. Um, it involves teams of two running around a four, uh, riding around a 
a 400 meter long track um, as a relay um, alternating on and off. And the way that they switch on and off is that they grab each other's hands and the one who's riding slingshots the other one onto the kind of center of the track to race. Um, so it's quite a spectacular event. Um, and it is very much who knows who'll win. Um, and that's the case with a lot of the track events, particularly the Australians. We've got a real changing of the guard in the Australian women on the track. Anna Mears and Carly McCulloch have been really the golden girls for more than a decade. Um, and this will be the first Olympics that we don't have them as the sprint queens. Um, and so it will be really interesting to see who steps forward as the start of the next generation. Um, and the men's, uh, the Aussies have quite a good, strong team. Um, we should expect that there'll be a reasonable shot at a couple of medals, but because of the way track cycling is, it's really unpredictable and we're not sure who we will see. One of the dark horses out of the men's road race going back there is going to be Alejandro Valverde. He's one of the oldest guys going around on a bike. He's not racing the tour this year, which might give him an advantage of fresh legs and he knows how to win one day races. So I think there's a really good chance that we'll see a Spanish competitor um, as a dark horse entering the gold medal race. Well, I'd say speaking of dark horses, even though not that long ago, we would not have said the Matildas are a dark horse. I think because of the losses that they've just gone under in Europe at the start of April and also their horrible group that they've been placed in, they realistically can be considered a dark horse because we're not really expecting them to get gold now that they've been placed with the number one in the world being US and former medalists, uh, Sweden. Yeah, Jackie, I mean, dark horse is, is supposed to be a real medal shot. I think, uh, the, the Aussies, the Matildas are going to have a bit of an uphill battle to get out of the group stage. Um, realistically, it's going to be pretty tough, but maybe with that coaching change and Sam Kerr hitting her straps, there are a chance at kind of getting back to that top form. I think getting their top W League players back is going to help massively. And whilst I'll say I wish there was another two friendlies before the Olympics, even though that's not realistic, I think that their group stages, it'll be about managing the losses against the US and Sweden and hopefully pulling out a draw and then hopefully just absolutely smashing New Zealand to come out of the group stage in at least third as a higher ranking third team and then get through the final stages that way rather than winning their group, which is what everyone would have originally hoped for. And uh, yeah, just just moving on to to sort of the the qualified teams now as well. Um, obviously, Japan as the host country have qualification rights, and they're they're currently ranked ranked eleventh um, overall. So so sort of yeah, just out, outside that top ten a little bit. Um, and then got Brazil um, ranked in seventh, New Zealand twenty um, second. So so a bit yeah, a bit more of an outside um, outside rank there and. Um, and Great Britain, um, who is just uh, just England um, in the in the official ranks, a, a sixth. Um, Netherlands third, as I said before. Sweden um, fifth. Canada eighth. Um, an interesting one. Zambia ranked one hundred fourth. Um, so that's uh, yeah, sort of a very outside chance there. And um, Australia ninth. China fourteenth. Chile thirty seventh. Another sort of long long shot there. And um, obviously the US is the first first ranked uh country jackie i gotta give you a little bit of credit there at least the dark horse wasn't zambia ranked 114th in the world yeah look it might not seem the best call but wishful thinking 
And it is Australia, so you just never know what's going to happen with our football teams. Uh, in the men's football as well, obviously, a bit was made of Australia's um, draw and their their pool there. So Australia in Pool C with Egypt, Spain, um, and Argentina. Um, obviously, Spain ranked sixth in the world, and Argentina um, ranked eighth. Um, so yeah, a bit of a bit of a tough pool there. Egypt are, are ranked forty six, but um, looks to be an uphill battle for the Aussies who haven't um, haven't featured at an Olympics for. 13 years now so 2008 um, in Beijing was their last one there um, and just a quick look at the other groups as well so group A um, it's got Japan South Africa Mexico and France and probably you'd have to say Mexico and France are the the two two best shots there France obviously ranked second um, and Mexico 11th um, group B as well a bit of a um, bit of an outside group I guess you could say um, Korea are the top ranked nation in that that pool um, ranked 39th and then Romania at 43rd as well. So could be could be fairly even. A group D as well, Brazil um, in second and Germany um, 12th in the men's rankings. They're alongside um, the Ivory Coast and Saudi Arabia there as well. Uh, just one more interesting point um, as well. There's been, obviously, as um, as it's a, the men's tournament, it's an under-23s tournament. They're permitted one, each team's permitted one overage player. And um, there have been suggestions from the Aussie coach, Graham Arnold, that, that Argentina could have um, Lionel Messi as their, their overage player. So I guess um, I guess that's a bit of an interesting one there. Dan, what are your thoughts? I mean, coaches always talk about wanting to, to beat the best and have the highest competition level. But you'd think that poking the bear that is the eighth best team in the world and probably the best player in the world is... Not the best idea given you've been out of the Olympics for 13 years, but then again, I'm not an Australian soccer coach, so what do I know? It's just a strange call to make. And I go, are we going to send our best senior player? And at the same time, who is that going to be? Are we going to send Yedinak um, or someone to the like? And A, I don't entirely see the point in doing that. But I just don't really don't see the point in antagonizing Argentina's under 23s that are very likely to beat our under 23s in the group stages. I think it's just a little bit of coach speak that's maybe gone a little bit rogue there. I'd say going rogue is the best way to phrase that by far. (laughs) Uh, So that's the end of this episode of Ascending Olympus. You can find us at theinnersanctum.com.au for any latest sports stories that are Olympics or other Australian sports. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Ascending Pod, And you can also find the Inner Sanctum at theinnersanctum underscore au. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.